Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer upper tier patron emails. Let's get to it. This first email is from upper tier patron Megan from Australia. She writes, can you talk about the similarities between borderline personality disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? I recently was diagnosed with borderline and next month I'm being, I'm being assessed for inattentive ADHD. I've joined support forums for both conditions and have noticed that there's a lot of crossover of symptoms. For example, rejection, sensitivity, and substance abuse are shared by both. I have even read an article posted on the Psychology in Seattle Discord forum about self-harm in ADHD. I'd love it if you could talk about the similarities and differences between these two conditions. End of email. Yeah, well, it's complicated, but the very short thing I will say is, yes, there are some overlap in that for people who suffer from borderline, they are often being triggered with their relational traumas and thus have a hard time paying attention to things, and they might be very distractible, right? If you are in, uh, if you suffer from borderline, then your moods based on your relational trauma triggers are going to vacillate uh, a lot. And we all understand that when we're in a terrible mood, it's hard for us to pay attention. And we might be preoccupied, if you will, with other kinds of things. And we might not, we might not be able to do certain tasks because our brain is really concerned with other things. Um, also with borderline, they will say that they are impulsive, which I actually don't like that uh, symptom that they will mention because it implies that borderline people are similar to people with ADHD, which they're not. People with borderline have difficulty with impulsivity because they are experiencing emotions very quickly. Like when people with borderline, they have relational traumas, and when there's an indication of abandonment, however small, their mood will plummet and they will, quote unquote, impulsively say something or impulsively break up or impulsively, you know, quit their job or something. But, uh, you know, to say that they're impulsive is a little funny because it implies that they lack self-control or something and people with borderline don't. The, the reason why they're impulsive is because they're having an extreme emotional reaction given their relational traumas being triggered and it from the outside it might look impulsive but it's not it's not anything like ADHD impulsivity. So the thing to watch out for, Megan, when you talk with your uh, clinicians is that uh, a lot of things can look like ADHD when they're not. When you're depressed, when you're anxious, when you have borderline, it can look like you 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 might be able to uh, endorse every single symptom for ADHD, but. The fact of the matter is, is the only reason why you have those uh, difficulties is because of borderline. Similar if, you know, a kid is suffering from anxiety. Typically, or commonly, or what I see happen a lot, is the kid will be diagnosed with ADHD because the kid isn't paying attention in school. They're not able to do their chores at home. They are irritable, this kind of thing. And there's this knee-jerk reaction by a lot of people to be like, oh, ADHD, let's give them Ritalin. And the thing is, is you put anyone on stimulants and they're going to do a little better because stimulants uh, help us to perform better. They help us to think, you know, more easily, temporarily. And of course, there's side effects to all these things. But, uh, and then we miss the more difficult thing to assess seemingly, which is the underlying anxiety. And of course, people with borderline can suffer from a lot of anxiety as well. So 
you know, just be careful. Now, can some people have both borderline and ADHD? A hundred percent. Yes, that absolutely can happen. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron Liz. She writes, I've been in therapy for about a year now, working through abandonment and sexual traumas I experienced as a child. My therapist and I have hit a wall over the last few months because I have a difficult time remembering the events. She seems persistent on figuring out the first dramatic event I experienced so we can unravel the rest of the memories. However, we've had no luck, and I was wondering whether or not you think I'll ever be able to remember those events. End of email. Yeah, so this is a common issue in therapy, and I've ran into it a number of times myself. And the short answer I'll say, obviously, is talking with your therapist and asking them because they would know much better than I would about your particular situation. But it's sometimes the case where I will be working with a client and they, you know, I, I had a client, for example, who we knew was abused growing up, but, you know, as a child, but she couldn't remember a single thing prior to the age of nine. Not only could she not remember the abuse, but she couldn't remember anything. She couldn't remember birthday parties or even the house that she lived in when she was, you know, eight years old, seven years old. And although it's not unusual to have limited memories of your childhood, it's it's kind of unusual to have no memories. Now, of course, we understand that it makes sense that for some people, if you've been abused, that our brains will say, you know what, it's probably best that you don't remember any of that stuff. And that can happen. And it can be distressing. It doesn't mean that we have no recourse to recover because we don't absolutely need to recall those events to recover from them for sure. But it can be distressing to people and they want to remember. And I've spent with some clients a lot of time referring them to hypnotherapy, memory specialists, you know, physical doctors, and no luck. And we just throw our hands up after years of trying to figure it out. And we just say, well, I, I guess you're just never going to remember. And I guess we're just going to have to live with that. And that can happen. But what can also happen is that as you recover and have secure attachments with your therapist and others, that your body might actually feel safe enough to remember. I've seen that happen as well. But again, keep talking with your therapist and good for you for recovering. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron Nicole from Los Angeles. She writes, at the high school where I teach, I have the opportunity to teach life skills to our students. I recently did an activity with our students based on the steps of a good apology that you discussed in the podcast. The activity was very successful with our students. You have mentioned that you feel an important thing for people is to learn how to have a healthy breakup. What are some steps or qualities of a healthy breakup? End of email. Well, Nicole in Los Angeles, I'm so glad that you are teaching kids healthy life skills, including how to apologize effectively and how to break up ethically. That is fantastic. You are doing wonderful, wonderful, important work. And so the qualities of a healthy breakup are thus. So you, because, okay, where do I begin? Um, the, the key is empathy and also having, taking time. So what often will happen, you know, it, it, I'm sure all of you, have been on either side of this equation where, uh, you know, you're so a few months you're thinking, oh, I think I need to break up with this person. I'm not really quite sure. Oh, I'm going to, this is going to hurt. I'm going to feel so bad. 
And then you finally say, okay, I got to do it. Or you have a big fight or, you know, that's the other scenario. But, you know, let's stick with the first one. And you sit down with the person and you say, you know what, we have to have a talk. And I'm really sorry, but I want to break up. And you say that. Okay. There's crying. There's tears. There's anger. There's upsetness. And maybe both of you cry. And then you say, okay, well, I'm going to go home now. And I hope we can be friends. And you move on with your life. And then that's it. And the the model typically is you don't usually talk about it again. But what is a healthy breakup is if the person, and it's a big if, the person who's being dumped, if they want to talk with the dumper, then the dumper should allow for that. Now, it depends if the if the dumpy is abusive and not, you know, fair, then that's one thing. But if it's within normal, if it's, if it's reasonable, you know, it's it's normal for a for a dumped person to have some emotional reactivity. So, you know, there's a line between normal, uh, you know, unfair emotional reactivity and abusiveness, right? But if it's within normal limits and you can take it as the dumper, then I think it's your ethical responsibility to actually have those conversations. The person might want to know, wait, did you ever love me? How come now? What happened? Did you cheat on me? I don't understand. Can't you give us another chance? And within reason, I think it's ethical to stay in contact with that person. And here's the reason why. Because the if you don't, it risks giving the, the dumped person this narrative that you never cared. And they, you know, so the dumped person is walking around going, you know, because you get dumped and then you have this natural inclination to think, did the person ever love me? And then you reach out to the, the dumper and the dumper says, I don't, you know, we're done. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm clean break. I'm moving on with my life. My friends say I need, my therapist says I need to move on with my life. That's this kind of thing. Well, what can happen with that is that the dumped person will get the impression that the dumper never loved them. And that is a very destructive narrative to carry with them. Now, in reality, what probably happened was you did love that person, but eventually you fell out of love with them, and but you weren't sure you fell out of love with them, and it took you a while to figure out you wanted to break up with them, and then after a long enough period of time passed, you decided, yes, I do need to break up with this person. So, you know, that's okay, and it's, I think, your responsibility as a dumper to make sure that the dumpy understands that you did love them and that it was hard for you to break up with them. Also, it's important that they feel like you care during the dumping process. You know, that I'm using the word dumping. I hope people aren't hurt by that. It's just the word I'm just using for now. Breaking up with dissolution process. It's important that you ethically... Uh, break up with someone so that the person being broken up with walks away going, well, that sucks and I'm really hurt and I'm really sad and this is really demoralizing. But the person who dumped me, I it's clear that they care about me. And so, you know, this is just one of those unfortunate things. They, they fell, fell out of love with me. What are you going to do? So that's, the, that's the distinction is you want the person to walk away with an accurate picture. You want the dumped person to walk away with the picture that you did love them. It was a hard decision for you and you do care. If you break up with someone in the typical way, the dumped person is 
often developing a narrative that you never cared and that you're a terrible human being and they have no idea how to pick the right person to be with because they clearly decided to be in a relationship with a monster. And so, you know, how do you do that exactly? Well, like I said, you, you want to, if you can stay in contact with them, you know, the, the typical breakup process is clean break. You tell them, you give it a couple hours and then that's it. But in my recommendation, often what it involves is ongoing conversations where you're in person and it's just the two of you and you're, you're talking it out. And the, the way that I describe it is for the person who broke up with the other person, for the person breaking up, they have been struggling with the emotion and the decision for weeks, months, years, maybe. And then, and so by the time they decide to break up, they've dealt with a lot of the feelings Whereas the person who is being dumped, they're just at the beginning of dealing with those feelings. And so it, it's, it stands to reason it's going to take them a while, the dumped person, to recover. And I think it's important, if you care, to facilitate and to help that process. Now, the person being dumped, they need to reach out to a lot of people, not just the person doing the dumping, right? Now, there are some pitfalls that you can fall into when you do this kind of stuff. You can lead the person on, right? You can give the impression that you're still up for potentially re-engaging. And so it's incredibly important that you continue to uh, remind that person, no, we're, we're over. This is it. I, I'm, I'm talking with you. I'm hanging out with you right now because I care about you as a human, as a friend, and as a former partner, maybe as a future friend. But in no way are we, are we ever going to get back together again. This is very important that you say that because some people being dumped are prone to deluding themselves that, well, we're still in contact. So, you know, surely there's, there's, a, there's a chance here. And the, dumping, the dumper person will sometimes feel bad and guilty for reminding the dumped person, no, we're, we're really done. But you have to keep saying that because... Again, you don't want to lead someone on. The other pitfall is that the dumped person might decide that they're going to take out all their anger on the dumpy, on the dumper. And they're just like, you know, I'm really sad and I'm really angry and I'm just going to let them have it. And they just proceed to uh, yell at the, at the dumper every time they come together. And that's not okay. So both people have to have to be nice and um, within reason to make this work. And, you know, I don't know if I have steps exactly of like, you know, you do this, you do that, you do that, but those are the general principles. And what you'll find is that a lot of people in society will not agree with me. They'll be like, oh, that's, you know, you're supposed to have a clean break. And, you know, the, per the person being dumped needs to move on with their life. And you're just leading the person on, this kind of stuff. And I, I just I just don't agree with that at all. All right, this next email is from Upper Tier Patron Brody from Asheville. They say, My boyfriend and I are very happy together, but we do not argue well. We both have different ways of escalating more contentious, difficult conversations. We both work with our own therapists, but decided to go to couples therapy. And thank you for the inspiration to do that. And I'm wondering what we should expect in couples therapy, and do you have any insight to offer a couple's first time in therapy together? Well, 
end of email. Well, first off, Brody and boyfriend, good for you. It's wonderful that you're doing that. It's uh, a very effective form of treatment that can help you with what you're talking about, a conflict resolution and learning how to communicate in more effective ways, learning your own emotions and all that kind of stuff. How they're triggering each other, learning about each other. So that's great. You're also an individual therapy, the two of you. So that means you're very mature individuals. And you're saying, you know, what can you expect from couples therapy? Well, you know, I think you can imagine what couples therapy looks like. Uh, but the advice I have, which is what you're asking for, is to allow the first couple sessions to be a little weird because there's a lot of getting to know each other in couples therapy. And what I find is a lot of couples in the first few sessions will have a lot of expectations, a lot of hopes, and they get real amped up. And so couples therapy takes a long time. And so just just let it breathe a little bit, give it a few sessions, and also, um, you know, and, and, and allow it to not be very, I don't know, it can be very uncomfortable in the beginning. Let's just put it that way. Sometimes it takes a while to feel comfortable with your partner in the room with you while you're talking to a therapist and the two of you are arguing with each other. The other thing I'll say is, as always, make sure you find a good fit. Not every couples therapist is the same. And so just make sure that you don't stick with a therapist that isn't a good fit. I'm guessing, I'm hoping there are a number of couples therapists in your area. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron Maria from Washington. She says, this is in reference to your patron only episodes on schema therapy. While doing my self-evaluation for schema therapy, I couldn't help but also think about other people in my life and how they would respond, most specifically my mom. It seemed with every schema where I would identify with many of the statements, I would think my mom would have an even, an even stronger reaction to that schema. It probably wouldn't surprise you that I got a perfect score on the enmeshment schema. Is it possible that children would develop the same schemas as their parents, or is this a result of heavy enmeshment? End of email. Yeah, so it could be both. But the very general thing I'll say is traumas seem, uh, typically are passed down through generations. So if you are, you know, if you're a very critical person and you criticize your children, your child a lot, and that child grows up with, you know, conditions as a result of being criticized, then that child will grow up to be a parent who is likely to criticize and then the child of your grandchild will have typical, you know, similar schemas as yourself. My dog is wanting to chime in. <laughs> um, so that's what I'll say about that. And obviously enmeshment can result in that too, because with enmeshment, there's a command on the child to have the same personality or at least the same values as the parent. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron, John from Charleston. He writes, my fiance and I have been together for almost six years, and she was diagnosed with lupus about four years ago. On top of that, she has Epstein-Barr, so the combination always makes her tired. I find myself getting upset and or angry with her for constantly having to take naps or relax during the day, partially because I am high energy, I'm a high energy individual, but also because when I was a child, my mother was an alcoholic who would pass out at early in the morning early in the evening and leave me all alone. I'm currently in therapy to work on my emotions. However, I was wondering if these feelings are common. End of email. Yeah, John, it's universal. When you have a partner who is struggling with something like lupus 
or chronic fatigue or some other condition, then it's totally normal. Because on one hand, you care, obviously, John. But on the other hand, your life is terribly negatively impacted by the condition that your partner is going through. Let's say your partner is depressed, you know, something like that. So it's normal to be sad, demoralized, angry, upset. Um, you know, it, it's it's normal because it's upsetting. The Now, your fiancé is having probably more pronounced emotions. I mean, it's incredibly depressing and demoralized to have to deal with lupus or other kinds of conditions like that. So you're both going through a lot, and, it, you know, it's, it's normal. Now, to be angry with her, that's a different kind of thing, right? Because she doesn't have any control over that. And so you want to, you know, work on that. Now, you also identify that as a child you had to deal with a mom who was an alcoholic and would not be around for you. And so obviously this situation with your fiancé is triggering that, which you're identifying. And so obviously with your therapist, healing from that is imperative for you to have a more balanced reaction to your fiancé. But the other thing that might help is that your mom, in all likelihood, you know, you might look at your mom as like, ah, you know, she was always drinking all the time and she always would pass out early. Well, it's quite possible that she was suffering from something that was really out of control as well and she needed alcohol to cope. So although it's terrible that you were victimized by her abuse, alcohol abuse, but you could also look at it similarly in that, she didn't have any choice given what she was given in her early childhood. So I don't know if that helps, you know, because to be angry, it, it sort of implies to be angry at your fiance, to be angry at your mom, assumes that your mom and or your wife had a choice in the matter. Your fiance have a choice in the matter. And another way to look at it is they really had no choice. Now, your mom you know, might have had some choices. Maybe she was given an opportunity to go to Alcoholics Anonymous or treatment or something, and she refused. But, you know, sometimes it's it's just life is really hard. And just thank your lucky stars that you don't have these conditions and you have a very, that you're very high energy and that you want to do a lot of things. The other thing is just to have other people, things to do stuff with and to diversify your socializing or activities such that your fiance doesn't have to always be the one, you know, if she has to relax for a day or two, you have someone else that you can do things with. And I'm guessing your fiance would be cool with that. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron, Lara from Toronto. She says, my boyfriend is very close with his ex-girlfriend and I'm, and I've been noticing myself getting jealous of her. I admire their relationship and I don't want to get in the way of their friendship. But I noticed that I, I'm not envious of his ex-girlfriend, but rather the 12-year-long relationship that they had. They had to end things because of COVID and not wanting to be in a long-distance relationship rather than a big conflict or ongoing relationship issues. I've, I'm very close with my ex, but we were not a good fit romantically. I can't help but compare my year-long relationship with my boyfriend's 12-year-long relationship with his ex-girlfriend. How do I stop comparing? End of email. Well, so there's a number of things I'll say, uh, but in brief, the, you know, there's some elements working against you. You say that they they didn't break up because of incompatibility or conflict or something. They they broke up because of COVID and they didn't want to be in a long distance relationship. So that implies that if it weren't for COVID, 
that they'd still be together. So that uh, is going to be a complication that will perhaps enhance or amplify your jealousy. But the other thing I'll say, which is really applicable to any jealous uh, situation, is that the antidote to jealousy is security. So when you feel jealous, which is fine, it's a barometer indication that you're that you are not feeling close enough and secure enough to your boyfriend. And so the thing you want to do is reach out to your boyfriend and say, Hey, I'm feeling jealous of your ex-girlfriend, but it's not really your ex-girlfriend. I just don't feel like I, that you love me uh, as much as I want you to love me or as much as I love you. I'm not accusing you of anything, but I, I guess I just need some reassurance. So that's the key. What people will do in your situation in an unhealthy way is that they will say, how come you're always talking to your ex-girlfriend? Or they will triangulate with the ex-girlfriend and say, you know, get out of our life. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a conversation about that in a respectful way. But the core of the issue is if you're feeling jealous and you're like, oh, you know, he, he had this 12 year long relationship with her and they seemed like they were so compatible and, that, you know, it feels threatening to me. I'm jealous of that. Well, the the solution is you, you should immediately say, oh, the core of this issue is that I am just not secure in my relationship with my boyfriend. Now, you've only been together for a year, which isn't really that long. And so it's normal to not be entirely secure. Uh, long-term relationships that are 25 years long and have been relatively healthy and secure are much more secure and much more you know, people are much more assured that the relationship is going to last than a year-long relationship, right? So some of that is just kind of normal. But again, I would reach out to your boyfriend every time you have that feeling and say, I'm having that feeling again. Can you reassure me that you love me? All right, this next email is from patron Chris from Scotland. He writes, I was overwhelmed by your deep dive on avoidant personality disorder. I have always thought that I had avoidant or anxious avoidant attachment style. I've been in therapy for about 18 months. Now, the identification with a personality disorder that I now have makes it seem like this will never get any easier. Can you summarize the differences between attachment and personality disorders and how your treatment of individuals with these would vary? End of email. Well, I don't have the time to really go into all the details on this, but in summary, avoidant personality disorder is at its core a schema that one believes that there's something wrong with them and they avoid relationships and socializing because they believe that everyone can see that. And so they're just a hundred percent convinced avoidant personality disorder people that there's really no point in them socializing or in trying to get a job or even going outside potentially because everyone's going to see, Oh my God, look at that person or that person talks funny or they look funny or they smell funny or they don't have the right things to say. It's really an extreme version of social anxiety as one of the things is one of the ways to look at it. But it's personality disorder because the belief, you know, people with social anxiety typically know that they have excess, that they have excessive anxiety. People with avoidant personality disorder do not necessarily know that their point of view is distorted. Now, you, avoidant attachment style is really something quite different. And this forms with 
generally speaking, with a parenting style of neglect, emotional neglect, and the child learns, you know what, it's just best to turn away from relationships and to depend on the self and not to depend on others. And when in doubt, when there's an attachment threat, uh, the tendency is to run and break up or distance or withdraw because of the terror of being abandoned is so great that they would rather just be on their own than to risk being abandoned or rejected, which happened to them a lot emotionally when they were children. And so avoidant personality disorder is very different from avoidant attachment style, as you can see. Now, can someone have both? Yeah, absolutely. Can they be related? Yes, absolutely. Now, you're saying that you're saying, oh my God, I have a personality disorder. That means it'll never get better. No. Uh, Avoidant attachment style isn't necessarily easier to treat than avoidant personality disorder. So just understand that. And the fact that you can recognize avoidant personality disorder symptoms in yourself means that you have a fair amount of self-awareness and probably some, you know, wonderful potential to actually recover. The key is, is through corrective experiences, you learn that you, that there isn't anything wrong with you. And even if there was, it doesn't mean that you need to avoid relationships. I mean, there's plenty wrong with me, but that doesn't mean I avoid relationships with my wife and my friends and my family. It just means I'm like, well, you know, take the good and the bad with me. <laughs> That's You're just going to have to deal with the the bad things about me because I deal with the bad things about you. So avoidant personality disorder is a condition that with a fair amount of treatment can absolutely rescind and avoid an attachment style similarly. So, you know, have hope, uh, go to a therapist that understands what's going on. And also you now you ask, you ask like my dogs are both going crazy. I'm guessing there's a delivery of some kind at the front door and the dogs are really trying to intimidate the, <laughs> the delivery person. But, um, so, and by the way, like it drives me crazy when some um, delivery people who think who consider themselves to be dog people, they will they'll stop and go to the window and like try to calm the dogs down, which just makes the dogs more upset. And so I'm always just like, just deliver the stuff, do your job, and don't aggravate the dogs. You're just making it worse. <laughs> You know, I understand that you think of yourself as a dog person, but there's no hope in this scenario. The dogs, I mean, part of the issue is with the pandemic, the dogs have almost no socializing. In fact, virtually no socializing with people outside the family. And so when they see strangers, it's a very weird thing for them. But anyway, but you asked me, patron Chris from Scotland, about the treatment differences between avoidant personality disorder and avoidant attachment. It just is a different a corrective experience. With avoidant personality disorder, the corrective experience has to be centered around you are a good person. You are fine. There's nothing wrong with you. I accept you. I won't reject you. Even if you do have something, quote unquote, wrong with you, I will stay in contact with you. You're secure with me. With avoidant attachment style, the corrective experience is as the avoidant person is vulnerable, the therapist is caring and stays in contact and doesn't reject and rinse and repeat that that the key to avoiding attachment style recovery is to be vulnerable with people who care and that's that's the key vulnerability receive care vulnerability receive care vulnerability receive care all right let's take a break we get back more emails 
All right, we're back from the break. So let's give some shout-outs to old patrons. So these two patrons have been patrons of the podcast ever since July of 2016. So they signed up in the early days on Patreon with us and have been and remained patrons the entire time for the past five years. We have Hannah from South Carolina, who was an upper-tier patron. Thank you so much, Hannah, for being a patron all this time. And also good old Hallie who is also an upper-tier patron from Lake Stevens nearby Seattle, home of Chris Pratt and his ex-wife, which I can't remember her name. But anyway, so Hannah and Hallie, good old Hallie. Hallie has been on the podcast before. She has her own podcast called Someday We'll All Be Dead. (laughs) Someday We'll All Be Dead. The reason why she calls it that is that she has worked in hospice before and has a lot of compassion for people going through the the dying process and helps the families and all that kind of stuff. So it's a good podcast to listen to. She talks about a lot of different things. But anyway, thank you, Hannah and Hallie, for being patrons for so long. Very, very heartwarming to me. All right, this next email is from Cat Patron Cat from Sydney. She says, My understanding is that trauma histories play a significant role in the development of mental illnesses and personality disorders, particularly childhood traumas around attachment. But why then do different people with trauma histories develop different conditions? Is this impacted by the type of trauma and or brain chemistry? Would love to hear your thoughts. End of email. Yeah, well, so the the short answer I'll say is no one knows. No one knows why anything is created. We only suspect that childhood trauma is... uh, the cause, or at least partially the cause, because it's often present. But sometimes it's not. You'll have someone with issues and you, because you have to rely on the individual to tell you, were you traumatized? When you, we don't have the ability to take a time machine and go back to watch if someone was traumatized. And even if we did, we'd have to be able to scan the brain to know if they experienced it as, as traumatizing. So it's, you know, when I say that, oh, you know, childhood trauma causes this and that, I'm talking about like, research that shows that it seems to be correlated and we all know that correlation doesn't mean causation but you know we can make some pretty uh, strong conclusions based on the mountain of evidence that points in certain things but then you ask so so we just we don't when it comes to the brain and particularly personality uh, traits or conditions we really are just looking into a black box trying to figure out what's going on in the darkness. But the other thing that you say here is, you know, why do why does childhood trauma develop in a, such a menagerie of conditions and what types of trauma result? Well, so the answer I'll say to that is that some some types of trauma seem to be associated with some types of conditions like childhood sexual abuse is associated with borderline personality disorder but if you're abused as a child sexually do you always develop borderline no uh, can you have borderline without childhood sexual trauma yes so there there are some associations and why would that be well uh, it's a combination of a lot of things, uh, according to the models that I adhere to, which is, you know, you say brain chemistry. Yeah, that's one. Um, well, what do we mean by brain chemistry? Well, we mean like temperament, essentially, and perhaps disposition based on brain chemistry, you know, these kinds of things. Anyway, point is, is that we are born and we develop a personality and this causes us to react to things differently. 
uh, you know, never forget reading about cases about people being sexually assaulted and one person will just be completely devastated by it. And the next person will not be that both of them didn't like being traumatized. You know, both of them were horrified and terrorized in the moment, but one person seemed to bounce back and the other person didn't. And what's the difference? Well, some people are just more anxious. Some people are more prone to thinking about these kinds of things more often. Some people seem to have more resilience. There's all these words that we have and how do we, how do we build resilience and how do we deal with exact or excessive anxiety about things? Now, I want to say, to be clear, that if one is sexually assaulted, it's completely normal to develop PTSD afterwards or a number of other conditions. But the point is, is that there's a combination between your biology, the way you experience things, the way you see yourself, your tendency regarding fear or other kinds of reactions. You know, some kids are just more fearful than others. Your ability to reach out for help, your ability to trust other people based on your biology and your experience. So you match all those individual differences up with the experience you go through. You know, what was the experience like? What did the person, you know, not every sexual trauma is the same or no sexual trauma is the same. Every sexual, every trauma is different. It always feels different. There's all there's all these little elements to it that make it specific. How intense was it? How long did it last? How over how many years did it last? Was it with someone that you liked? Was it was it a stranger? Was it threatening? Did it were there elements of it that actually kind of felt emotionally gratifying? But overall, it was terrorizing. You know, it's just a lot of nuances to our experiences, and so that's where the different conditions are, uh, you know, diverge. So for one person, they might develop narcissistic personality disorder. Another person might develop avoidant personality disorder and, and so on Be- because of the way that these things interact and the conclusions that the person comes to. Because that's one way to think about a lot of these conditions, particularly personality disorders and, and attachment styles, is that they are conclusions that people come to. When you are being abused as a child, but occasionally given love, you know, say you have a mother who is loving sometimes, but also very angry and abusive other times. Well, the conclusion that the child comes to is, well, and then and the child tries out various different techniques to try to get love and attention and try to reduce the abuse that they're getting from their mother. And they find out that when they are hyper vigilant and really paying attention to their mom, then they can, and, and really gauging their emotions and just hyper focused on their mom's emotional state, then they can kind of game the system a little bit, kind of make sure the mom is in the best state that she can possibly be. And all the while the individual is like, also, if I suppress my own personhood, if I, if I don't pay attention to my emotions and I don't express my emotions, then or I, I don't know who I am and I don't express my need. I don't know my needs, but I do express my emotions sometimes. Then I will have an optimal situation. It's still a bad situation, but it's better than if I, if I'm not hypervigilant. And so this is the borderline conclusion, the conclusion that I need to be just hyper-focused on other people and I need to demand that they pay attention to me 
that whenever I feel slighted, I need to react very strongly and very swiftly so that they know not to do that again. And, and you know, there's various other things. All the while, I, I have to deny who I am because if I, if I focus on that, that'll take my eyes off of other people, which I cannot do. I have to stay hypervigilant on other people. So that is a, that's the personality disorder. Once that becomes codified in the personality, then it, it expresses itself as an adult as a personality disorder is what we call a personality disorder. So depending on how the individual going through the abuse and the trauma interacts and how they interpret and, and the way that they manage to optimize the situation, that sometimes can determine the adult condition that we will observe. This next email is from Anonymous Patron. They write, could you talk a bit about victim mentality? What is it? Does it have to do with schemas? I was raised by a dad who would always be very sympathetic when I got hurt. And for some reason, as an adult, I noticed I get a lot of pleasure when I tell other people how tough it is to be me. Also, when having arguments, I always slip into poor me and how hard I have it. Could my childhood and present be connected? End of email. Absolutely. I don't know about you, anonymous patron. Obviously, you would want to talk with a therapist about this. But yeah, this is a known phenomenon, and it's a known personality trait. Sometimes we will call it histrionic. It's, 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 you could also dip into to some borderline as well. But the individual, uh, when we're young and we're, not been, and we're not getting enough love and attention, and we experiment with a lot of different things as children to try to get our needs met, and we find that our parents or people who are taking care of us have a little bit more love and attention when we highlight how much suffering we're going through. We might cry, we might say we're hurt, then this can create a knee-jerk reaction of victim mentality when you don't necessarily need to do it. You're in an argument with your spouse and or you're or more specifically, you're having a bad day and instead of just going to your partner and saying, oh, "I need to vent about something." Instead, you, uh, you know, either drum up or enhance, exaggerate some kind of struggle that you're going through, like a physical ailment or something. And this, this can become so pervasive through the personality that the individual will actually manifest somatic problems, physical problems that they are convinced themselves they're going through. And this is actually kind of interesting that you'll find that when um, people have this schema of the only way I can get love is if I am suffering physically or if I'm suffering in this specific way. It's the only way anyone's ever going to love me. Um, a number of conditions, can, factitious disorders, another disorder that will emerge from that, you know, obviously. But for, for some of these people, because this is an unconscious thing and the unconscious is powerful, mind-body is pretty powerful, it can actually cause problems physically to emerge in the individual because they want them to emerge subconsciously so that they can get love and attention. And it can not be fake, too. Like, there can actually be functional problems with the body. At least that's our hypothesis with some people like this, so that the individual can get the love and attention that they think is only received when they are suffering physically. In other words, the individual deep down believes there's just no way they're going to get love and attention unless they're sick. And then the body actually creates a sickness, which is, you know, pretty interesting. So an honest patron, again, I don't know about you, but it's definitely possible. 
All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I listened to your attachment deep dive again, and in the culture part, you say that in many other cultures, avoiding attachment style is very rare. I am originally from Russia, and I, my parents, and many other Russians I know have avoided attachment style. Is this only my anecdotal experience? Do you know any studies looking into it? It makes sense to me since Russia, uh, since in Russia it was for many years very dangerous to talk about emotions and be vulnerable. End of email. Yeah, so to review what I was talking about in the deep dive, I was talking about the research that showed that in around the world, you will have different prevalence rates for the different attachment styles. So again, we have the four attachment styles of secure, avoidant, preoccupied, and disorganized. There are other words for them, but those are the ones that I tend to use because I, I, I like them. But in other countries, if I remember right, research demonstrating that in Japan and a couple other countries, they found that no one, no child exhibited avoiding attachment. And so there was this confusion as to why that would be. Well, the hypothesis, because it's hard for us to know, is that in some cultures, children are not neglected generally. So uh, neglect is why children develop avoiding attachment style. You know, the parent isn't available enough and the child learns, I I just got to give up on other people and I'm just going to do things on my own and I'm not going to reach out and I'm not going to be vulnerable. And in some cultures, perhaps Japan, although they have problems with parenting and will will have a lot of preoccupied people and disorganized people, they don't have a very high prevalence or a, you know a similar prevalence as the United States with avoidant people. And so, what this could mean is that babies, infants in Japanese culture, generally speaking, are often very close physically to their parents and are not neglected. In you know, because anyway, I hope you get my point. Whereas in Russia, and I, you know, I'm, I'm quite positive that there are uh, attachment style prevalence rates studies looking into Russia. I don't have them in front of me, but it's possible that in Russia, given your anecdotal experience that a lot of Russians have avoided attachment style, that Russia has a similar um, prevalence rate of attachment styles as the United States. I don't know, but uh, that's what I'll say about that. All right, this next email is from patron Amanda from New Jersey. She writes, I think a lot about identity and why it is so important to people. For example, students get so mad at the idea of having to wear a uniform and not being able to express themselves. After listening to your podcast, I notice how a lack of identity often causes people to form personality disorders. Why do you think this forming of your individual identity is so important to your psyche? I wonder because I was reflecting on the part of Buddhism that tells you to let go of your identity to get rid of your suffering. End of email. Well, patron Amanda from New Jersey, you're integrating a lot of different ideas, and I like that. But there are you know, some pretty significant differences in our usage of the word identity. So if we look at teenagers and having to wear a uniform and them being upset about that, uh, we talk about how they're, they're searching for their identity. Well, uh, a large part of an individual's self-esteem is to establish that they're good at things and that there's something different about them, that they're not just like one of everyone else, that, you know, I'm, I'm the kid who's good at this. And it's an early experimentation with, uh, with self-esteem, essentially. And uh, with our culture, a lot of kids will gain self-esteem 
by the way that they dress or the way that they look. And they want to express that. They don't want to just be like everyone else. They, they want to be different. And there's also another element of this is that children, teenagers, well, everyone will bond with other people by matching their identity with others. So, you know, think about the goth kids and the skater kids. They dress the same because they're signaling to the others and uh, that they are part of, the, of that group. They're trying to gain acceptance into that group. And if everyone is dressing the same, it's hard to know who's in what group, which is very important for teenagers, uh, which is understandable. So, so identity in that way is, you know, so, and I could go, the, the term, the, the subject of identity to properly explore it, you would have to read, you know, just volumes and volumes of, of material. (laughs) The subject of, of identity is extremely complicated, but you know, that's what I'll say about the teen thing that you mentioned. And then you also say, after listening to the podcast, I noticed how lack of identity can cause people to form personality disorders. So that's actually not the way I would put it. What, what I'm referring to when I'm saying a lack of identity is that when we're young and we're being treated badly and we're not being attuned to, we do, we don't develop a self meaning we, and the, the better, phrase that I've been trying to use more often lately, we, we don't gain a connection to the self. Because, you know, early on in my career, people say, oh, that person doesn't have a sense of self. And I was always like, what does that, what does that really mean? And it took me a long time uh, to, you know, of reading and researching and experiencing a lot of people with personality disorders to figure out what that meant. What we mean by that is that the individual was never given a chance to really get to know their emotional state. And, and their emotional state are an indication of their needs. And so you can have someone who isn't attuned to growing up, who is 25, 35 years old, and they literally have no idea what they feel, and they literally have no idea what they need. And they're just randomly trying to meet their needs be, uh, because they have a vague understanding that they might need relationships and they might need, uh, you know, creativity and fun or something. But But they really just have no idea who they are and what they need. So that's what we say when, you know, they lack an identity. We're not saying that they don't have a personality. We're saying that they don't have a connection with their emotional state, which is a, which is an indication of what they need. So for example, someone who lacks a connection with their, with themselves, um, deep inside of them, they have this need for assertiveness to feel like they matter in the world. Um, in a particular moment, you know, they're, they're talking with a friend and all of a sudden they just get this sense like, Hey, you know what? I feel like this person isn't really paying attention to what I'm saying. And to the person that has a connection with themselves, who does have a connection with their identity, will feel that feeling and will do something about it. They might, they might start talking about themselves a little bit more, or they might literally just say, Hey, I feel like you're discounting me. Can you listen to me a little bit more? To the person who wasn't attuned to, who lacks a connection with the self, as we say, they don't know that that's happening to them. So this this feeling of being discounted and rejected is building inside of them. And they might have a general feeling of displeasure, the individual, but they don't really know why. And it'll happen over and over and over again until it becomes so, the, the, the feeling becomes so horrible deep down in their body that they end up noticing it. But by that point, the feeling is so overwhelming that they don't know what to do with it. And so 
that's what we mean. And that's a simplistic way of saying lack of connection with a sense of self. But that's, of course, is different than a teenager wanting to express themselves and bond with their friends in the way that they dress and exploration of who they are, that kind of thing. Um, then you also say, you know, why do you think this forming of your individual identity is so important to the psyche? Well, so that's a third topic that you're talking about of people wanting to be an individual and the forming of one's identity. Who am I? What are, what are, what is my purpose? What, what makes me, me, you know, that's even a, that's even a third topic of the word identity. And then you also didn't bring up a fourth issue, I think, which is, you know, you're, you're talking about how Buddhism tells people to let go of your identity to get rid of your suffering. So this is actually pretty complicated, of course. And, in Buddhism, this that's the ideal, right, is to uh, detach and to uh, let go of things that you don't have control over and to um, reach full enlightenment. You know, very Buddhist, you know, there's million, there's, I don't know, maybe a billion Buddhists on the planet. Everyone has a different point of view on this, so you can't really summarize the whole thing. But, but uh, to characterize it, it's like if you have complete ego death, as people will call it, then you experience euphoria because you no longer are attached to a certain outcome. You're just like, you're just, you're just, you just exist. You just are, and you don't have an identity. You're just one with the universe, this kind of thing. And some people on LSD or other kind of hallucinogens will actually experience this just by taking the substance. And again, volumes of discussion that I could go into, uh, most of which I don't really understand myself because it's not my area. But uh, what the way I interpret the letting go of your identity is a, a practice, because Buddhism is a practice, right, of releasing the pressures that we put on ourselves. You know, the identity of... I am a high-powered attorney or something, and I always win my cases. Well, the attachment to always winning your cases and to be seen as a high-powered lawyer can create a tremendous amount of suffering because you're in this constant treadmill of impressing everyone and, and pressuring yourself to constantly win things and control things that are really out of your control. And to detach yourself from that is to allow yourself to just be and to not be your identity, to not be that high-powered lawyer, to just be you or whatever it is that is you at the core that's beneath or below or at the core of you, well beyond the boundaries of what profession you are, this kind of thing. And by doing that, you reduce your suffering or eliminate your suffering because you're you're not depending on these outside things to be true in order for you to be happy. Yeah. That's a simplistic way of, of discussing, you know, the identity issue within Buddhism. You know, there's obviously, like I said, there's a bill, I think there's literally a billion Buddhists on the planet. And so there's, there's again, people study this stuff for their entire life. And um, some people are like, Oh, that's, you know, it's not really true about Buddhism and you know, it's fine. But anyway, patron Amanda, interesting question. Um, you, you, you bring up a lot of different areas or, you know, aspects of quote unquote identity that overlap, but aren't the same. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, I'm curious about your thoughts on nature versus nurture. 
After having two sons only 15 months apart with completely different personalities, nature seemed more likely than nurture. However, after listening to you regarding systems theory, we may have shaped them, and I'm questioning my ideas of nature versus nurture. End of email. Again, I could, you know, there are volumes of things that perhaps more volumes on this topic of nature versus nurture. And it, to, to start off my answer, it's a bit of a um, weird distinction that we have. It's sort of like we distinguish between the mind and the body, the brain and the body. Uh, no, we, the mind is a product of the body. You know, we, we don't, we don't have a separate mind. The mind is of the body in the same way that my finger is of the body. My mind is of the body. My personality is is a physical manifest. It's a thing. It's a thing that emerges. That's that emerges from a physical thing. In the same way that nature. So the the there's no mind body delineation or boundary. Nature versus nurture. Same thing. Uh, we evolved and we develop within a nurturing situation within the environment. And humans. There, we, there's no possible way of raising a human that doesn't have any kind of environment you need in it. You could, I guess you could raise a child in a dark room with no contact with anyone, but that's kind of an environment, right? It's a denying environment. So the delineation between nature and nurture is false. Uh, so for example, a child that has that's been born and by the way there's there's precursors in the womb right not only of genetics and development physical but also interaction with the outside world you know the child doesn't just suddenly start interacting with the outside world upon birth you know they're there's they're somewhat interacting with the outside world from an early age in the womb anyway so you have a child that let's say you have a child that is born with just a little bit more neurons in their amygdala, their fear uh, center in their brain. And they experience things just a little bit more intensely when something is, is scary. And then that experience bolsters their fear center in the brain even more. And so by the time they are a year old, they have a much larger fear response than the average child. But the difference was a very small difference in their neurons regard. And again, this is uh, not necessarily scientific. It's just sort of a, 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 a ham-fisted way of discussing the biology of one's brain. And it's not my area, but I do know enough to sort of ham-fistedly discuss it. And you have, so just a small difference in the amygdala upon being born interacts with the environment from day one and even, you know, earlier in the womb that produces an effect that uh, results in a drastic personality difference than their sibling who had, let's say, the normal amount of neurons in the amygdala. So which is it? Is it nature or nurture? Because when the child was born, they were barely more susceptible to fear than the average child. But because of their reactivity to the scary things, it exacerbated that small difference. So what are we talking about here? Nature, nurture? Well, it's both. I mean, it, it happens with both. It's all, you know, nature and nurture are in constant contact with each other, basically making the, 
the boundary meaningless, right? So now you also say that you had two sons 15 months apart that have completely different personalities. Yeah, everyone who debates nature versus nurture and says that, you know, nurture is way more important, all they have to do is actually have more than one child to realize, oh, children are born with a template. <laughs> they, they come into the world already with some personality tendencies. So that's clear. We understand that. That's temperament. Psychoanalysis, which is very nurture-oriented, will absolutely acknowledge temperament. And there's lots of literature on that within the psychoanalytic world and within the attachment-based world as well. But at the same time, we understand that our experiences with our parents and being raised is also extremely important, right? Which is more important? It's a, it's a nonsensical question. And research and science will sometimes try to answer this question, you know, like, you know, with twin studies, they'll determine, okay, well, this disorder seems to have about a 50% heritability or 50% genetic cause and, you know, this, but that when you actually look into what they're actually saying, that's actually a, a difficult thing to say because what people will interpret that as is that, so if you have the genet, if you have the DNA uh, to really re- reduce it down to the way people do, people say, well, you have the genetic code for bipolar. You know, this person has the genetic code for bipolar and or the genetic code for addiction, for alcoholism or something. And again, when you really understand how genetics works and how development works and how these how these research methods work, you understand that that is a bit of an oversimplification and a, and, a, and a bit of a re- reductionist way of looking at things. Again, getting back to my original thing, we don't really know why we do anything. <laughs> it's, it's, the brain is very difficult to figure out. We're continuing to learn, but it's such a mess. I mean, it's so hard to to know how things develop and why. And uh, so there's that. But again, we have some science pointing us in certain directions. And anyway, I'm rambling, but I, I hope you like my answer. Maybe you don't. <laughs> All right, this next email is from patron Sylvia from Los Angeles. She says, The fact that you turned a toxic show like 90 Day Fiancé into a learning experience for all topics of self and relation help has encouraged me to find a therapist for myself. I have my first appointment with her next week, and I am honestly nervous. I feel that I can relate a lot to Mike from Mike and Natalie in, in the fact that I am so scared to open up and be vulnerable. I have friends and I have known that I've known for years and a supportive and kind boyfriend who loves me, but I tend to keep from talking to them about my problems out of fear that they will leave me or think I am too needy. I want to feel close and heard, but just cannot bring myself to tell them what I feel. I can vividly recall a moment in my childhood when I was in distress after a family dog attacked me and my hand was swollen and bleeding. I came crying to my mom and for some reason she laughed at me. I try and think back to understand why this happened, but I think this was such a defining moment in my life that taught me I could not rely on her or anyone else for emotional support. How can I get over these experiences? I guess what I want to know is if I'm talking to a ther- if talking to a therapist will actually help. End of email. Yeah. So first off, good for you for learning about yourself and your vulnerability sensitivity issues. And for going to therapy. And you're wondering if going to therapy will help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it will help you, but therapy is a wonderful venue to seek help for that. I hope that you actually 
do ask your therapist for help. The corrective experience is that you become vulnerable with your therapist and your therapist is trained to be kind and to be accepting and to be in contact with you and not reject you. And so as you are vulnerable and your therapist is attuned to you, then that is a corrective experience that will teach your mind and body, <laughs> the of which is the same, that you can depend on other people and that it is safe to be vulnerable. Now, you talk about a moment in your childhood where you were, you know, you had an injury from a dog and you went to your mom and she laughed at you. And that is horrible. And I'm sorry you went through that. I would suspect that your mom had a general way of treating you throughout your early childhood that created your sensitivity to vulnerability and that it wasn't just that one moment. Uh, it would be unusual if we had a wonderful childhood with a ton of attunement and then one moment like that, and that created what you're talking about. So in all likelihood, it was an ongoing, low-grade uh, neglect that was throughout your childhood. But I don't know. It's something to explore with your, ch with your therapist. All right. This next email is from Anonymous Patron. They write, I was wondering if you could talk about alcoholic parents and how they impact their children. How does it affect a child's attachment style and their lives relationships as an adult? Also, are, are their impacts significantly different if the parent is considered a functional alcoholic? End of email. Yeah, there's a lot of literature and discussion about ACOA, you know, adult child of alcoholics. And what I'll say is that, and there's a lot, fair amount of research too, a lot of research. And what I'll say is that it's hard to generalize because when you have an alcoholic parent, there are so many factors that can push people in different directions. Uh, let, let me just think off the top of my head about different factors that could affect things. Well, what about the other parent? Do you have contact with that person? Is that person a secure relationship with you or not? How, how bad was the alcoholic? Is the alcoholic, uh, you know, drinking all day long and constantly intoxicated or is it drinking at night? Is the person drinking belligerent or extremely forgetful? Are they, you know, traumatized as an individual? You know, uh, do you have siblings that are helping you out? Do, do they have siblings that not, you know, help you? Yeah. There's so many different factors that are in addition to the detail of a parent who is suffering from alcoholism that you would have to know, or at least have in mind when you're hypothesizing about where the development will go for the child. Um, also, as you know, I was saying earlier, some people are just more resilient. Some some people just have a different reaction to things based on their disposition or their experiences up until that point. But some general things you can say that aren't true for everyone, but are often true, is that uh, when you have an alcoholic, whether it's a parent or not, but when you have an alcoholic or a person who's suffering from an addiction in your life, what often will happen is the person suffering from the addiction will break a lot of promises. This is something that children will often talk about, how their parent would promise to do this and that and how they would break their promises. And why does this happen? Well, the person suffering from the addiction, they feel a lot of shame and they will often uh, have moments in their cycle of use that they feel like they can actually make up for it. And they're like, okay, I've been totally neglecting my child. I need to make up for it. So, okay, I promise we're going to go to Disneyland tomorrow. And then the shame builds up or the need of drinking builds up and they drink themselves into a hole and they 
they go, oh my God, today I'm supposed to bring my kid to Disneyland, but I'm too hammered. Or what if there's no, what if I can't sneak alcohol into Disneyland? Well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'll just avoid. And and so that's the other component that is often present in an alcoholic parent is that the parent will often be in denial that because they need to in order to sustain their addiction. And so there will be a lot of broken promises and a lot of denial. And uh, now, like I said, there can be a lot of other things that are quite variable. The parent could be abusive. The parent could be not abusive. The parent could be cold. The parent could be warm. But often there's a there's a level of disappointment that the child is going through and a, 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 a level of being betrayed. The child will often feel like the parent is betraying them in some way. Um, and that the parent seems to be living in a fantasy world, in a world that doesn't make a lot of, that the child will grow up in a world that doesn't make a lot of sense to them. They're, they're just thinking, you know, when I watch the, you know, television shows about families, it looks this way, but my family looks this way. Um, so that will result in a lot of shame for the child and a lot of confusion for the child, a lot of low self-esteem because the child thinks, well, the reason why my parent is breaking promises is because I'm not a good enough kid. I'm not worth it. These kinds of things. So now, you know, that can result in a lot of different sorts of things, but those are some of the general things that I'll say. All right. This next email is from patron Dimitri. He says, what works of Freud do you recommend to read for a beginner to start with, to understand him? End of email. Uh, That is a very difficult question to answer. Uh, Freud can be extremely dense sometimes uh, sometimes it can be actually fairly easy to read, but I actually don't recommend reading any of his works if you're trying to understand Freud. <laughs> because one, uh, well, the main reason is because he wrote to, you know, his writings were writings that he was giving to people who understood where he was coming from, understood the language he was using. And so it sometimes requires you to understand psychoanalysis to read psychoanalysis, but how do you understand Freudian psychoanalysis if you don't read it? Then what I'll recommend is you read a book called Basic Freud by Michael Kahn. Uh, Michael Kahn is a pretty easy um, to read author, and this book is called Basic Freud. Pretty, It's still pretty dense, but you know it's easy enough. The other book that I would recommend is Freud and Beyond by Mitchell and Black. Uh, this goes into the full history of of psychoanalytic thought it kind of uh, breezes through things pretty quickly so yeah but this can be kind of an overall book freud and beyond uh, but the basic freud book i i would recommend all right this next email is from a patron from europe she writes my own therapist made me realize i have histrionic and narcissistic traits However, she calls my behavior narcissistic compensation and not a full-blown narcissist. On the internet, I have read about compensatory narcissism. Is it really that different? I am obsessed with my looks, my weight, and have episodes of intense hypochondria. My empathy disappears in one specific situation, towards men who are into me. I seem to feed on their attention, admiration, and give them nothing in exchange. I use all my resources to lure them in just for my amusement, not considering they may have real feelings towards me. I swear this is subconscious. End of email. So your first mistake, patron from Europe, is to go on the internet and Google narcissism. The internet is filled with misinformation about narcissism. 
it is one of those things, for whatever reason, and it's really developed over the past five or ten years, that people are just uh, obsessed with narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, I would say 20 years ago, people didn't even know about it. And now everyone talks about it all the time as if they know what they're talking about. Research shows that only a fraction of of clinicians understand what narcissistic personality disorder, let alone the general public knowing what narcissistic personality disorder or what narcissism really is. So, and, and it's one of those things on the internet that is just completely bastardized all the time. Now, just to be, so what do I say? Well, what I'll say is that on the internet, when people are talking about narcissism, what they often are talking about is actually psychopathy which is a lack of empathy. People with narcissistic personality disorder do have empathy. It is just impaired empathy. People with narcissistic personality disorder do care, and they do have the capacity to care, but it's impaired by their constant need to uphold the veil of self-aggrandizement to make sure that they deny their own deep self-hatred. And that is clear, and I've treated many people like this, and it's very obvious to me when I treat people like this. But when you talk about, when you read stuff that people talk on the internet, like, you know, this phrase, so full-blown narcissist, even the word narcissist, no one, I don't, no one I know in the clinical world uses that word, a narcissist. We, what we say is someone suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, which is a completely different phrase, right? That person is a narcissist and that person suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. This whole idea of a quote-unquote full-blown narcissist is really a, a weird phrase, and I think it is a, an amalgamation of a lot of things. One, misunderstanding. Two, I think a lot of people are thinking back to mainly men. The word narcissist is almost always applied to men on the internet, but the fact is is that half of people who suffer from narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder are women, especially when you uh, take away the bias that assessors typically have. And so, anyway, but a lot of people, a lot of women, are uh, have been hurt by men. You know, all of us. Well, let's just say all of us have been hurt by, you know, someone broke up with us and made us feel like we didn't matter. And it felt like the person breaking up with us, it felt like they were very self-centered because they didn't consider our feelings. We feel as though our feelings are being discounted. And then the conclusion is that person must only think about themselves. Oh, they are a narcissist. But the fact is, is that when someone breaks up with you, it's just normal to feel that way. And it'll appear as though the person doesn't care about your feelings, but they they probably do care about your feelings. It just doesn't look like they care about your feelings. It's also natural to feel that way when you're being dumped, right? So I suspect that a lot of people on the internet, particularly heterosexual women, are looking for answers. They feel thrown away. They feel discounted. They feel unfairly rejected. And the internet has this, 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 this just filled with articles and comments about, oh, you must have dated a full-blown narcissist and stuff. Now, it's possible that you did date a full-blown narcissist or someone who suffered from narcissistic personality disorder. But it's actually kind of a rare full-blown disorder. And it's more likely that there was there was a misunderstanding or the person wasn't very mature or the person had some other kind of traumatic condition or, you know, it's just a variety of reasons as to why someone would lack empathy. Um, so there's that. Um, but you're talking about how you're, 
you're and it's great that you're aware of this you're just like and you talk about it being subconscious that you will lure men in to uh, be attracted to you and give you a lot of attention and admiration while you're not giving them anything in return and so why would you do this well and your therapist says you have this is a histrionic and narcissistic thing to do well again continue to talk with your therapist about it but if I was to, uh, you know, assess someone like this, the thing I'd be looking for is when we are denied enough attunement growing up, we have available to us a reaction of trying to um, make ourselves feel like we're awesome through various different means. And as adults or as teenagers, we'll figure out, oh, actually, I'm attractive. You know, like let's say that you have this tendency to be narcissistic developed because of lack of attunement growing up. And then as you're growing up, and again, the narcissism is because the person needs the narcissism. The person needs to be boastful. The person needs to believe they're superior because they feel like they can only rely on the self. They learned early in life that they could only rely on the self. And you also mentioned hypochondria, which is also can be a result of emotional neglect. Essentially, you're left on your own too much, and so you're just generally anxious, and your anxiety attaches itself to health, to illness anxiety. But anyway, so the narcissistic person with you know narcissistic tendencies learns as a teenager, as a young adult, that oh, I'm attractive, and so one of the ways you know you learn because you just interact with people, I'm attractive, and you learn one of the ways that I can bolster my feeling of superiority is to get as many men as possible or as many people as possible to, uh, you know, tell me how much they love me and to, you know, because in our society, we say to ourselves, if, if a lot of people love you that way, then that means that you are, you're cool, you're better. You know, the, the person who can get a lot of admiration and attention and, uh, you know, people attracted to them, that's a better person because that's how we define that, you know, culturally. And so the person sets out to do that in this constant treadmill of trying to feed their narcissistic supply of, am I lovable? Do Am I attractive? Does this person love me? Without ever asking the question, do I care about this person? And does this person have feelings? And again, this is impaired empathy. The person with narcissistic personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder, they do care, but they're they're on this treadmill of, of, of panic that they don't have time to notice other people's feelings. So continue to talk with your therapist about this patron from Europe. And you sound like you're on a good path and you're, you recognize this and now you can actually get the corrective experience that you need so that you don't need to be on that treadmill of narcissistic supply. All right. Well, that was fun answering your patron emails. Thanks for asking all those things. I did not get to as many as I hoped, and there's still a very long list of emails I did not get to. <laughs> so if you emailed in a question a while back, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, it's not humanly possible to get to all of them. I do try, but I don't. Um, and I pretty much just start at the beginning of the document. I just sort of work my way down. <laughs> but um, anyway. All right, people. How you doing out there? Are you doing okay? I hope you're okay. I hope you know that you do deserve love and you do deserve to be heard and you do deserve to tell other people how you feel and you do deserve to be who you are with all your traumas and otherwise. 
you do deserve to have your trauma reactivity and to make mistakes and to sometimes be self-centered because of the traumas that you went through. It's not your fault. You went through it and you survived, but now you know and you're recovering and you're doing everything you can and you deserve all the love and attention that a human should get. And um, I hope that you know that. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.